welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Greetings, conversationalists. It is Eric Erickson across the country, and I am delighted to have you with me. The phone number, should you wish to be a part of the program, 877-973-7425. You can always find me on social media at EW. Erickson, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, you name it. What you should do is text Eric, E-R-I-C-K, to 33777. Click that first link, get my daily email, click the other links. You can find the podcast, the live stream, find me on social media. It's not hard. Now, we must move on because we need to talk about Mexico. The president actually did his border visit in El Paso. And the first time he's been to the border, by the way, they said the first time his presidency, it turns out it's his first time at the border. And he's headed to Mexico. And I got to be real honest with you. um, Mexico is a failing state where the narco cartels are overrunning the place. The New York Times, interestingly, has a story on uh, Ken Salazar. He was the, what was he? He's the Secretary of the Interior for a while. I think he used to be governor of Colorado or some such, and he's now the American ambassador to Mexico. Let me just read you part of this because it's, it's, it's interesting. Mexico's election czar delivered a message to the American ambassador. The Mexican president was mounting an all-out assault on the National Elections Authority, sowing doubt about a pillar of the country's democracy. Instead of expressing alarm, America's top diplomat in Mexico took up one of the president's lines of attack, entertaining claims that an election long in the past, in 2006, had been stolen from the Mexican leader. The ambassador, Ken Salazar, said in an interview he was not convinced the election was clean, challenging the stance of the United States at a time when democracy is under threat at home and across the hemisphere. Mr. Salazar, who invited the election overseer to his residence, told the New York Times he wanted to know, was there fraud? The matter's long been settled until now. The ambassador's willingness to question the election's legitimacy, an election from 2006, is the latest example of what U.S. officials say is a worrying pattern. When America's top diplomat in Mexico has appeared to contradict his own government's policies in the interests of aligning himself with Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico. When he took office in 21, September 21, Ken Salazar was told to prioritize building a strong relationship with the Mexican president. As the primary buffer between the U.S. and record high flows of migrants, Mr. Lopez Obrador holds enormous leverage over Biden's presidency. Preserving Mexico's cooperation, administration officials said, meant avoiding conflict with a mercurial Mexican leader who has the power to damage Biden's political future by refusing to hold the line on migration. Mr. Salazar has, in fact, succeeded in getting close to the Mexican president, but there's growing concern within the administration that the ambassador may have actually compromised American interests in the process and has not leveraged the relationship into policy wins. 
The ambassador has rehashed debunked claims of a stolen election used by the Mexican president to fuel distrust in the country's democracy, questioned the integrity of a U.S.-funded anti-corruption nonprofit that's gone up against the president, caused a political storm by appearing to signal support for an energy overhaul the U.S. government opposed, and has stayed silent as Mr. Obrador relentlessly attacked journalists. In strategically important countries governed by volatile leaders, U.S. ambassadors often have to walk a fine line between cultivating a bond with that country's president and pushing their own government's priorities. Within the U.S. government, some are questioning whether or not our ambassador has gone too far to suck up to the Mexican president. There's a real problem here. There's a real problem with all of this. Now, never mind, I think the American government to some degree is wrong in some of what the Mexican president wants to do. But let me tell you the dirty little secret that isn't really talked about that much. The Mexican president is believed by more and more people. to essentially have relationships with the cartels and that the cartels and the Mexican president have some level of detente by which he allows them to invade our space and traffic their drugs into our country, and he largely turns a blind eye. There is a growing belief in our national security community, that the Mexican president works in tandem with the cartels. And that while they are not compatriots on all issues, and in fact in Mexico maintain some level of fighting against each other for control of parts of the country, that the Mexican president, to avoid the open warfare that he wants to avoid, has essentially decided to turn a blind eye to what they're doing and uh, given them permission to do it, licensed them to do it. This is a real problem because of the spillover effects to us. I don't know if you all have heard the story over the weekend that there's now an uh, animal tranquilizer that is being mixed in with drugs that come from Mexico and people in this country are experimenting with this animal tranquilizer. It's causing more people to die. It's not just the fentanyl at this point. This is a problem with the Mexican president. This is a problem with the Mexican state. And the problem for the Biden administration is that their ambassador has too good a relationship with the Mexican president to prioritize our interests. It's like Stockholm syndrome or some such. He's become super buddy-buddy with the guy. And the ultimate issue here is that it is starting to undermine us and our national security objectives. It's bad for us. 
And we don't have an administration willing to deal with this. And frankly, we haven't really had an American administration willing to deal with it either. The Trump administration came closest. They certainly came closer to the Bush administration. But even during the Bush administration, when they had Vicente Fox down there, uh, this is uh, one of the elections the Mexican president believes was stolen from him, where the Mexican conservatives who wanted to take on the narco cartels, they beat him. And he's been resentful of it ever since. They kept him from power. The conservatives kept him from power. Remember, in Mexico, the current Mexican political party in charge has largely controlled that country forever until the Bush administration. There was this big sea change towards the right. And they won. There was a fabulous campaign ad. It was done. um, Oh, come on. um, Alex. Now I can't even remember Alex. Oh, come on. This is going to drive me crazy uh, because he's a friend of mine. And suddenly, um, oh, 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 Castellanos. Yeah, duh. Alex Castellanos. Alex Castellanos, uh, if you'll remember, remember the rats ad back in the 1990s? The rats ad, it was the Democrats and the way Democrats would display it on the screen. The very last part of it, rats came back and it, there was this Democrat screaming, he's coming, his rats out there, he calls it. And they pulled the ad. Alex was responsible for that ad. And Alex did a brilliant ad uh, for the uh, Mexican uh, political party that was running against uh, the Institutional Revolutionary Party. The Institutional Revolutionary Party PRI in Mexico maintained absolute control over the country for most of the 20th century. Um, in In 2000, they lost it. And then in 2006, they lost again. In 2000, Vicente Fox won. And in 2006, Felipe Calderon won. And that was the the PAN party, P-A-N, the National Action Party. It's the conservative party. And the party, PAN, has typically lost to PRI. And PRI is socialist. And PRI, having had control of Mexico for so long, has had ties into the Mexican drug cartels. And the Mexican drug cartels have had territory within Mexico where PRI has turned a blind eye. And that all changed in the early 2000s when Vicente Fox got elected. Vicente Fox may not be your cup of tea. He certainly didn't like Donald Trump. But Vicente Fox was actually a great reforming president in Mexico. He cut out a lot of he cut out a lot of the corruption, not all of the contr- corruption, arguably benefited from some of it. But he had been a Coca-Cola executive and he decided to privatize parts of Mexico. He decided to reform parts of Mexico and he decided to take the fight to the drug cartel. And he won. And now PRI is back in and the current president of Mexico is alleged to have ties to the drug cartels in some capacity and turn a blind eye to the drug cartels. And no one in this administration in this country wants to acknowledge the failures of the Mexican state. There are parts of Mexico where towns have had to build their own militias because the Mexican police state won't come police for them, where the police officers are getting murdered. There are Americans down there who are getting kidnapped regularly now. It is not a safe place to go. 
it's not a safe country to visit if you're an American anymore. I've got a friend who goes regularly for a think tank and every year has more and more security guards go with him to protect him when he goes. And this administration doesn't want to deal with the issue head on. This administration doesn't want to acknowledge the failures of the Mexican uh, government to the narco control of the cartels. And this administration doesn't want to take the problem seriously because if they had to take the problem seriously, if they did take the problem seriously, they would have to acknowledge something they refuse to acknowledge. Donald Trump was right. We need a border wall. And they don't want to fund it and they don't want to build it. And it's exactly what we need. If you own a small to medium-sized business that kept employees on payroll through COVID, you may have a big cash refund waiting for you. The employee retention credit is a tax credit of up to $26,000 per employee, and now more businesses than ever qualify. The experts at RefundsPro.com specialize in cutting through the red tape of qualifying for this government program. Most of their refunds are over $100,000. Even businesses that have received PPP funds may be eligible, and there are absolutely no fees unless you receive a refund. There's no reason not to apply. If your business experienced shutdowns, limited capacity, supply chain challenges, or even reduced revenue due to COVID, you likely qualify. RefundsPro.com has already helped hundreds of businesses, so don't lose the refund you're owed by missing the deadline. Get started today with the free five-minute questionnaire at Refunds with an S, refundspro.com. That's refunds with an S, pro.com. Greetings. How are you? Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, okay, so just full disclosure, fair warning here. Uh, for those of you listening, wondering what is going on on my flagship station, I'm not on there today. Uh, and I say this to the people who aren't listening, I suppose, but I'll say it to you guys if, if it comes up. My my mom and my father-in-law are both like, what's happened? Is he okay? Why isn't he on? Uh, he, so my flagship station, WSB in Atlanta, is also the station on which the Georgia Bulldogs football games are broadcast for uh, the metro Atlanta area. And as a result, because tonight is the National College Football Championship, uh, WSB Radio is airing a special. And at 3 o'clock, I will hop over there and be on there. But I'm not there now because they're doing a special. But I'm everywhere else I'm supposed to be uh, for everybody who got the memo that I was switching satellites today, which is a it's a so random little process here is. So I broadcast my show beamed out across the 50 states on a satellite system. Uh, it's called an XDS system, and I had been using Premier's system, which is the home of Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck, and the like. Uh, and but I was going through it through their Georgia office, and the, the it, they've been fantastic people, wonderful people. Uh, but it was time for a move uh, because many more stations. Uh, have receivers, satellite receivers from Westwood One. Westwood One uh, does a lot of sports programming, talk programming, music programming, and the like. And um, so I moved over there effective today. And apparently a couple stations didn't see the back and forth emails and the like. Um, but I think I'm restored everywhere. So in any event, um, we got to move on. 
but um, I'm I will be back on WSB tomorrow. So okay, I uh, got other stories we got to talk about, including Joe Biden looks like he is pivoting for uh, the 2024 election. Before I get there, though, the New York Times has hired David French. Now, full disclosure, I happen to be friends with David French. Really like the guy. We disagree on a number of topics. Uh, I definitely think that uh, David over the last few years has. Um, viewed himself in a way he speaks somewhat prophetically, I think, back to the right these days. Uh, I I don't always agree with some of the things that David says, but he's a, a, a dear friend of mine. Uh, there are things I say that he disagrees with as well, uh, and, and we can leave it at that and still be friends. What I find notable is that uh, David actually, when he writes to the left explaining the right— uh, does a good job, and there are days I wish she spent more time doing that instead of talking back to the right, uh, where I, I oftentimes these days disagree with him. But it doesn't matter to some on the left. The New York Times has now hired him as a columnist, and progressive activists, particularly of the transgender variety, are furious that David French has gotten a column at the New York Times. And they go through a great base saying, we don't believe in cancel culture, but he needs to be canceled because he doesn't accept us. They are furious, furious that uh, David French would do this. And in and, and one of these columns by one of these crazy people, I got a shout out as um, braining myself as a guy trying to find common ground. Uh, there are times I try to find common ground, but also there are a whole lot of times where I would just like to accurately explain my side to people who read the New York Times who have a uh, biased view of what's actually going on on my side. Uh, David French, let, let me just read you here. Uh, if the New York Times wanted to publish David French on occasion, uh, from now until the end of time, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I've read his pieces. And as you'll notice, this is the first time I'm bringing him up. But they shouldn't give him a full-time columnist position. It's bad. It's bad. Now, these are the same people who want to cancel Joe Rogan. They want to cancel me. They want to cancel talk radio. They want to cancel Fox News. They really do not like having anyone challenge them. It is a bubble that they are in. And they don't want their bubble penetrated by anything on the outside. They live a comfortable existence believing they are right on everything when they're not. It is remarkable to me how so often... They can't even acknowledge there might be some validity to the viewpoints of the right. They don't want to be exposed to it. They're mad about Brett Stevens, who is an establishment moderate voice of the Wall Street Journal. They want him fired. They don't want Ross Douthat there, who's openly Catholic. They don't want David Fritch. They do not want to and have to encounter views with which they disagree, which is part of the problem of the left. For all their talk about us being the authoritarian side, they are not only authoritarian, they're intolerant of anyone who thinks differently from them. Along racial lines, economic lines, political lines, you name it, they cannot tolerate anyone differing with them, and they want to shut us all up. And now they're upset about the Times hiring David French. So for real-world impactful dynamics of how this college football game tonight shakes things up, the Georgia legislature convened today. It's required to convene uh, the first Monday in January after the first of the year after January 1st. Um, so as early as the second, it doesn't meet on January 1st or uh, second. If it's a Sunday, they would meet on the third. So today is the 
first Monday, I, I guess, no, it's the second Monday um, is when they meet. So today is the second Monday. Constitutionally, they had to convene, and uh, they abruptly convened, elected their leaders, and adjourned so that any number of them could hop Delta flights, hopefully not Southwest flights, to get to Los Angeles for the college football championship game. I, I got to just – Philip and I were talking about this off air. I'm kind of surprised by the number of people I know who have dropped exorbitant sums on tickets and airfare to get there. Uh, they they are the, the comfortably middle class, I will say. I'm like, that's a whole – I mean, that's your that's your vacation – for the year that you're spending to go to this championship. And I, I guess for the love of the game and you're a diehard Georgia Bulldog fan or a diehard fan of uh, Texas Christian, and I don't know anybody who's a fan of Texas Christian, but I'm sure they exist. And off you go to California to watch this football game. Now, look, if if I had the money, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would take friends and I would go. One day, when I can afford to have Priority Jet fly me around the country all the time, I'm going to do it. But I'm not there yet, and I'm just kind of, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. To each his own. Now, we got to talk about uh, Biden and the pivoting. The pivoting has begun. I will also take your phone calls, 877-973-7425. The pivoting to the middle has begun. This is from Axios. His early 2023 moves, a visit to the U.S.-Mexico border, his appearance with Mitch McConnell to promote infrastructure reform, gave a crystal clear contrast with the GOP's chaotic speaker fight. Voters sent a clear message in the midterms. They want bipartisanship. They don't want extreme candidates from other side. Republicans have accommodated their extremists with often disastrous results. The Biden administration had been pandering to progressives, but now he's cutting deals with Republicans. Sunday's trip to El Paso, Texas, was the first time Joe Biden has visited the U.S.-Mexico border. He will showcase law enforcement, taking a possible Democratic vulnerability head on. This feels like the Joe Biden of 2020, says Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at the centrist Democratic think tank Third Way. This trip to the border is what the doctor ordered. Even as Biden shores up his center flank, he'll still need to balance the priorities between the party's ascendant progressive wing and majority making moderates. On immigration, party activists are already crying foul. This year's State of the Union address will help Biden solidify his moderate pivot. Ron Brownstein of the Atlantic says he needs to uh, pivot to improving conditions for workers in jobs that require advanced credentials. That may help him make inroads with blue-collar voters who are leaving the Democratic Party. He's asking agencies and departments to share their top priorities to include and wants to address progressive priorities without alienating independent voters. Now, there's a side of this you're not going to hear from a lot of people. But this is the legit real deal. In all honesty, 
the Democrats have problems too. And the left, the media, they love to focus on the crazies on the right. They love to focus on the divisions on the right. They love to focus on the fight on the right. They pretend it doesn't happen on the left. And I'll be honest with you, it doesn't happen as much in public on the left because there's a big difference. Matt Gates. Matt Gates does not need to be in the majority. What does Matt Gates do? Constituent service is bipartisan. Constituent service doesn't matter whether you're on the left, on the right, Republican or Democrat. You got a Social Security problem for someone. It doesn't really matter which side you're on. Part of Congress's job is constituent service. And if the Social Security Administration is jacking around a constituent, it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democratic congressman. They're going to be able to take action. Matt Gates has no need, though, to advance legislation. What is Matt Gates's agenda to troll the left? Matt Gates doesn't have to be in the majority to get anything done. There is nothing the majority gives Matt Gates that he can't get in the minority. Matt Gates can fundraise. He can control the left. He can tr- control the establishment. He can do whatever he wants to do in the majority and the minority. It simply does not matter. Same with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene in the minority could get thrown off committee, so it helps her to be in the majority where Kevin McCarthy can protect her. But it does not matter too much because Marjorie Taylor Greene can still fundraise, can still fight the left, can still go on Newsmax, do all of those things in the majority or the minority. Contrast that with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who fundamentally, vehemently, by faith, believes the world is going to end in less than 10 years. She must be in the majority to get anything done because she wants to pass legislation. Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, they don't need to pass legislation. They don't have legislation. They desire to pass overwhelmingly. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has her Green New Deal. She's got to be in the majority to pass it. So she cannot rock the boat as much as they can rock the boat. But she is ideologically still a progressive. And she has deep distrust of Joe Biden. For the last two years, Joe Biden has been catering to the progressives. He filled his administration with Elizabeth Warren acolytes and Bernie Sanders acolytes and AOC fans. He's been humoring the progressives in his fight against the GOP. And if you will recall, in the run-up to the election, they all thought they were going to lose and there were already plans to throw Ron Klain into the bust and throw the progressives out of the White House. The election was not what they expected. It wasn't what anyone expected, except the naysayers who always are contrarian and happy to get this one right. They were prepared to purge the progressives. But what actually happened in the election? Yeah, the Republicans did not do as well as they expected. And it turns out people directly tied to Donald Trump, who the people who ran on the stolen election claims and didn't focus on crime and local issues, they focused on culture war issues in the election. They didn't do as well as the other people. They didn't do as well. And in not doing as well as the other people, 
the progressives have interpreted it as, oh, we won. The progressives interpreted it as, oh, we've done great. The progressives interpreted it as, we saved ourselves. And so the Americans have embraced progressivism, but that's not really true. And Joe Biden apparently is smart enough to know it. Joe Biden understands that voters were not rejecting conservatism and they weren't rejecting Republicans. They were rejecting the stolen election conspiracy theorists and the people who didn't care about crime and business but ran on cultural issues. I mean, Tudor Dixon in Michigan, she spent more time running on transgender issues than she did on crime in Michigan or even on COVID policy in Michigan. Tudor Dixon, the Republican nominee in Michigan, did not even spend a lot of her time running against Gretchen Whitmer's handling of COVID. And the result, she lost. The result is the Republicans who didn't make it about Trump, but made it about policy issues. They tended to win. The people closely identified With just President Trump, without anything to be their own man, they lost. And the left has interpreted this, and you can tell from the media commentary, they've interpreted this as, let's tie every Republican to, to, to January 6th. Let, let's, let's make January 6th the new 9-11. Let, let's, let's make it all bad. Let's go after them. Let's discredit them. And I don't think that's going to work because Republicans, if they're smart, they define themselves, and a lot of them have taken it upon themselves to define themselves. And so they're they're not going to get tied. They're not going to be in that level of blame game. It's not going to work on them, even as the media tries. However, however, The media is going to keep on, and so the Republicans themselves need to not fall into the trap. The Republicans themselves are going to continue to need to define their issues and make it about the wokes. Go after the wokes. Still battle it out with the wokes. It's possible to do that. It's possible for them to distinguish themselves. And the Biden administration, he can pivot to the moderate side of things. But what's going to happen is he's going to get the progressives enraged with him. The progressives own the Biden administration. When they start leaving the Biden administration, that's going to be a smoke signal to a lot of them that, uh uh-oh, he's pivoting on us. They thought they owned him. They thought they owned Joe Biden. And it's going to go badly for them because progressives cannot take this administration rejecting them because they think they're the ones who got Joe Biden elected and they think they're right. Epistemically, by faith, they believe they are on the right side of history. They talk about history bending in their direction. And for Joe Biden to moderate and say, now, now, we we have to pivot. They're not going to pivot. They see no reason to. They believe they're right. So they're going to fight when Biden pivots to the right. Now, Biden's not going to go full right. He's going to try to stand in the center. 
and he's going to try to build a coalition. He's going to try to build a coalition of moderate left-leaning voters who may be voting Republican because they're scared of the progressives on crime. He's going to try to build a relationship between them and between progressives. But just keep in mind what I told you earlier. There's that data out there. Increasingly, progressive women are the most intolerant people on planet Earth. Increasingly, most of the progressives out there who are women, are they're the most likely to unfriend and unfollow people who they disagree with on social media and stop having relationships in real life with people they disagree with publicly. They're the bridge burners, not the bridge builders. And these are the vocal people within the Democratic Party. So when Joe Biden tries to make the pivot, the reality is there's going to be hell to pay for Joe Biden. When Joe Biden tries to make the pivot, when Joe Biden tries to build bridges, these are the most uncompromising political ideologues in America today, more so than anyone on the right. They're not going to allow him to do it, and there's going to be hell to pay. And by the way, a recession is coming. They may say none is coming, none is on the horizon, but a recession is coming. The data is there. And so you push Joe Biden into 2024 with economic headwinds against him and progressives mad at him and no one else trusting him, and there will be hell to pay for Joe Biden as he begins a pivot to 2024. This is an actual tweet from the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. <laughs> Whoever filled out a cougar sighting report and wrote your mom under the description, drop your Twitter handle. We just want to talk to you. <laughs> wow. The replies are fantastic. My goodness. Uh, okay. Don't forget, text the word data to 33777. Sign up for the show notes email. Uh, so you can get all the links of all the stuff I've talked about today. We're in today's show notes email. Uh, and then some, and you, if you're a subscriber, would have gotten it right as the show started so you could follow along and have all the data yourself so you can read the stories yourself. Maybe you'll interpret them differently. I don't want to think for you. I want to give you all the information. Text DATA to 33777. I got to play this out. Excuse me. I got to play this audio for you. This is from uh, one of the White House economic directors on CNBC this morning. What do you tell the president about the likelihood of a, of a recession this, this year. And I, I know he, he made some type of comment that, yes, we could see a, a mild recession. I think he conceded that. What is the base case for you and, and, the, and the, the Council of Economic Advisors on whether we do see uh, a recession? And, and what, well, would so it likely be, what are you forecasting would be at this point? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So right now, looking at the data, you know, from the end of 2022, we do not see indications that we are currently in a recession. We saw job gains last month. We continue to see wages increase, but at, you know, albeit at a, at a slightly slower pace. We actually got upward revisions to, la to the, the most recent data on GDP, and it's actually faster than many of our economic competitors. We're now seeing inflation, you know, it has been coming down on a monthly level for the past few months. We look forward to that data this week, but that too, um, you know, is moving in the right direction. We've been able to 
too, um, you'll see that progress on gas prices for families around the country, you know, coming down sharply from those peaks last summer, saving families, you know, uh, lots of money each month at the pump. So all of that, you know, combined with the president's economic agenda gives us hope that we are able to find this soft landing that everyone has been talking about. But, you know, we'll get new data this week. We'll get new data this week. They want to find a soft landing. Uh, Maybe they will. But these are the people who also said inflation was transitory. They've gotten so much about this wrong. Larry Summers has kind of been uh, the guy they tried to ignore and wound up not being able to ignore. He is the former Treasury Secretary during Bill Clinton's uh, time. He was an advisor to Barack Obama. He was the Harvard president. And Larry Summers says a recession is coming. Get ready. Larry Summers says be prepared. And while I disagree with Larry Summers on a host of economic issues and the solutions to them, he tends to be a pretty good forecaster of where the economy is headed. When Larry Summers is saying a recession is coming, I think I would believe him and not the White House who dismissed him. How bad of a recession it will be, I don't know. But this is January 9th of 2023. We are on the verge of having people decide they want to run for president. Mike Pompeo is thinking about it. Ron DeSantis thinking about it. Nikki Haley thinking about it. Mike Pence thinking about it. Glenn Youngkin thinking about it. They're all thinking about it. We're going to have them all at our conference in August. If a recession comes, they're thinking it'll be the fall a general economic slowdown in the fall. The Federal Reserve isn't done raising interest rates. It'll come in the fall, right as the Republicans are beginning to run. And here's the thing we know about recessions historically. Even when the media has been in the tank for the Democrats, when a recession comes, it's very hard for the media to spin a Democrat out of it. It's very hard for any president to avoid the implications of it. It's very hard because you feel it, and you continue to feel it long after you're past the recession, in large part because so many people— that you know continue to feel the pain. It's going to matter much for 2024.